Hello and welcome to episode 71 of WB40, the weekly podcast with me, Matt Ballantyne, and Chris Weston. Well, hello there, Matt. Here we are again for episode 71 uh, in the middle of the World Cup and uh, lots of other things that are going on in the world at the moment. Uh, and uh, Yorkshire's on fire, or is it Lancashire at the moment? I can't, I can't tell. Um, how are you? I'm good. Uh, I have a sense of relief. Um, I'm going on holiday soon, and I've bought a new camera because where we're going is lots of photography and stuff. We're going on safari. And um, I was getting convinced that either I had lost the ability to be able to take photographs entirely, or I'd bought a crock. And it wasn't super, super expensive, but it wasn't cheap camera and lenses. Um, and today I went and spent some time in Virginia Water in um, uh, just near Windsor and took some photographs that weren't complete rubbish. So I kind of relieved, and what I've remembered is that the key to good photography is just take an enormous number of photos, and eventually some of them will be all right. So that's a relief. Um, how are you? Well, I'm very good, thank you. It's been um, it's been very hot, hasn't it? We're all uh, we're all kind of melting. Um, and uh, I've been spending a lot of time on well various things, including as we said last week, we did some work um, on it was Friday, wasn't it? On our, on our uh, current venture, which is a, a bit of a uplift of skills for non-technical people, which uh, well, that was a really good day, and um, and yeah, it's, uh, now I've got one or two other opportunities knocking about, which is interesting. So uh, yeah, but I've had a good week, and um, you've had a busy one too. As well. you've been to Amsterdam again, and you've been uh, you know doing your your government stuff, and yeah, all sorts of stuff, all stuff, and um, I've got um, my world tour continues this coming week with two days in Cambridge. Um, which would be nice, uh, and yeah, no, it was a good session on Friday actually with the uh, the work that we're doing. Um, I've tweeted a few pictures, and I need to set up some sort of web thing to be able to describe the progress on that because I think it is a, it's another one of those things we're working out in the open is going to be really handy. Core idea is how do you take senior techno- uh, senior managers who don't manage technology and equip them with the skills and knowledge and understanding that they need to be able to make sensible decisions in relation to technology given that technology kind of has a bearing on just about everything we do these days so um we've got i think we've got the beginning of a, a structure for that which is some knowledge sharing and some uh, key themes that aren't technological but are about impact of technology in business and then the beginnings of a game dynamic to be able to make it come alive so that actually people are playing games through it rather than just sitting there listening to interminable lectures. So um, I think it's got potential to be really quite interesting. We shall see. I think it's, uh, I think, uh, let's face it, we are, we keep, we talk about it on this podcast quite a lot and uh, we see it in our everyday lives. The, uh, the, the days where you can, leave the technology in your business to the IT team and, and sort of delegate the, the job to them to figure out what, what tech you need are long gone. And if you do that, you're probably, you're probably doomed. Um, so you either equip your managers to understand how to work with those sort of people and take the right decisions or um, set yourself up for failure, really. So it's, a, uh, it's, it's the right time. Absolutely. And the number of clients I've got at the moment who the biggest barrier they've got to achieving anything is lack of engagement amongst senior members of staff in just in any way being interested in technology. Um, it's actually quite terrifying for a number of these organisations, I think, or at least should be. But there's, there's, definitely a, there's definitely a need in the market for this stuff at the moment. So um, we'll keep people posted as to how that develops and uh, I'll um, post some links out to that as well soon. So uh, anyway, anyway, on with the show. Uh, we've got book club this week. We've got a really interesting interview about uh, resourcing skills for technology, um, and uh, that will be that will be episode seventy one. So let's get on with it. So it's time after the uh, now obligatory two week break uh, to look at our book club and. We are looking at the book that we read, which is called, uh, it's by Jim Doerr, and it's called, uh, help me out, Matt, The Importance of Measuring Things or something Measure like What Matters. Measure What Matters, there we go. So um, it's, I think, 
I mean, we've had some interesting different styles of books. Um, and I haven't finished this book. I'm about halfway through it. And my the pace of reading it has slowed down because it's, kind, it's getting a bit repetitive. I think I probably got the message after about uh, probably <laughs> maybe the first three chapters um, in the traditional way. Uh, but that's not so I haven't enjoyed it. I, I really have, actually. I think there's a lot of good stuff in it. Uh, I just think it, 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 it's labouring the point a little bit as we get as, as, as we get a little further into it. Um, some good, some good stories, some good anecdote. Um, I particularly liked his uh, his experience of this operation Operation Crush that he talks about, where Intel tried to uh, well, essentially went out to grind Motorola into the dirt uh, as as their biggest competitor in the microprocessor space. And that uh, that appealed to me, and also, actually, also something that 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 came up, which is something that I kind of independently came to as a conclusion a few years ago, is that if you if you are in an organisation where you have the ability and opportunity to properly set objectives, and that you have your own objectives, really important for those objectives to be visible to everybody. If you're the kind of organisation which is really important, and and what sort of organisation does this not apply to? I don't know. But if you if you are if you're going to say no, we have got a focus. This is what we're going to achieve. This is a, this is what my objectives are, and team. So this is your objectives, and by doing that, you're going to help me achieve mine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, up to up to whatever it is the business is going to do. If if everybody displays their objectives, almost even to the point where they've got them on a on a piece of paper on their desk that people can see, it's a lot easier for people to to, tell, to say no. It's a lot easier for them to say, oh, I hear what you ask me for. Really interesting. Sure, it's important, but see that there, that's what I've got to do. That's my that's my key priorities. And I can't I can't fit that in around this right now. I might be able to give you some time you know, next week or whatever. But it stops people getting it gives them an excuse to say no, which is often not not the case yeah uh, no I, I, I'd agree we'll come back to that in a minute actually because I think that, uh, there's some uh, little experimental games I've been running that have, uh, have uh, kind of picked up on that idea and I'll talk about that in a sec um, at the core of the book John Doyle talks about uh, a, a, a system for setting objectives that is called OKRs the OKR stands for objective key results it was something that um was initially developed by Intel and Andy Grove at Intel, and then John Doerr, who's a massively successful um, VC venture capitalist in the Valley, has taken that method and introduced it to a number of companies uh, that he has invested in, most notably Google, and Google have um, enthusiastically uh, adopted OKRs as a kind of core performance and um, objective setting method across their whole organization the core idea you set your objective and you have three or four key results which will be your measurable indicators that you're heading towards your objective and you review them regularly you set them organization you cascade down it's kind of like how um, smart objectives in uh, appraisal systems were always meant to be but never ended up and uh, one of the things that is key difference is this, as you were just saying, is this tr- transparency across the organisation that it's vital that people are uh, disclosing what their OKRs to others because otherwise how can you know how you can help each other to set to, to achieve objectives. Um, the other thing is that they don't... One of the things, I've kind of got to a point now where the whole concept of smart objectives I think has failed miserably and the reason it fails is because people confuse... Uh, the specific measurable, uh, I can't even remember what the A stands for, realistic and time-bound. What is the A? Achievable. Uh, achievable, thank you. Um, and what they've done is that they've taken that to be, actually, your objective should be measurable and therefore the objective becomes a measure. And I've seen that happen again and again and again in organisations. And long uh, diatribes short, there's two factors that will happen if your objective is actually a measure, and that's that people will uh, game it to hit it, and the meaning of that measure will change because it's become some sort of goal. So um, there's something about the OKR system that seems quite compelling to me in terms of, of how it is constantly re-evaluated and that the, the key results can change over time. 
and the, the traditional six-month performance management process of setting some objectives and your measures and you wait six months to see whether you've achieved them or not and if you have achieved them then well done you get your bonus and if you haven't then all terribly bad um, whereas OKRs the objective is the important point and the uh, the, the key results are the things that are the the barometers to know whether you're heading in that direction or not. Um, whether it's possible to be able to implement that properly at scale across an organisation and it not turns into something that just looks like traditional performance management, I don't know. And I could see that a lot of organisations who are hardwired to treat everything as a cumbersome process would end up turning OKRs into a cumbersome process. I like the principle... It's a classic book of, it's well written, it's obviously ghost written, um, and it's done well. It is an absolute stereotype of the you only need to read the first three chapters. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, you know, um, that's the way business books are written. Yeah, I think um, any of these, anything you try to do in, in terms of um, setting objectives in an organisation is always going to go through a a series of um iterations because especially if an organization does not have a culture of doing it um people even yeah definitely myself uh, in the past i've I've completely refused to have objectives because i'm saying this is a waste of time i know what i need to do let's let's just get on with it if we we put all this process around it Uh, and sometimes i've probably been wrong to say that sometimes it's been right because actually the objectives has been a tick box that managers have to do and if they don't do it they get into trouble so they do it and all, as you say it's almost like the gaming of the setting of objectives that well let's just set these and we'll set things you some things you can do and everybody's colluding in it and it's just crap and that's it and that yeah that's a poor organizational culture uh, i quite like the um i quite like the way that the, the these um key results uh, are challengeable as well so you can or in your object or even objectives challengeable as well so you can go and say this is my these are my objectives and that your reports or the people that you're working with can challenge them and say no they're not that's not that's not that's not going to work and that's and, and that's all valid rather than this being some sort of wisdom and 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 manner passed down from the passed down from the top if you know what i mean and that and that even that phrase or uh, irks me. I, when I draw organisations diagrams, I try. I, t- I tend to draw them in a series of concentric circles, because you have a centre, and then you have, uh, as you go out, you have you have more people, generally speaking, and and it, and it's that they're, they're involved in in different things. If you draw it as a hierarchy with a top and a bottom, then you get into this world. You people at the bottom, you know, up here, you know, so it's, it's all very. Uh, just, I just don't, I just don't enjoy it. I don't, I don't think people react well to it. I think people see it as a, you know, you 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 reach the bottom of the ladder and you're the bottom feeder. Um, so I liked a lot of that. I liked, I like, I like the book, and I think it's valuable if you're if you go certainly if you're if you're entering into management or you're trying to take a, a smaller business into the world of uh, a more um, regimented. Uh, way of setting objectives i think i think there's a lot in it um the uh, yeah that 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 th- some organizations are just inherently hierarchical in their culture it's deep rooted in their culture and this kind of thing will fall flat on its face in that kind of organization because it is it is a decentralized kind of you know everybody has agency kind of thing and that kind of culture that comes a lot from the valley i think is interesting in how it it's assumed that it will just work everywhere else, and I don't think that's the case at all. And this would die for the reasons that other things that are non-hierarchical would die in hierarchical organisations. And if you want to change a hierarchical organisation, you need to change that culture of of, um, of the hierarchy, which isn't just about putting things from another world in. You've got to think more more clearly about it. The BBC tried it, actually, under Greg Dyke. He, they got rid of the... Um, the traditional organograms, and they described it in petals, with again the the um, the kind of servicing bit at the centre, and then petals out, which again represented this idea of a supporting centre rather than a hierarchically determining centre or top. Um, this thing though about people sharing objectives, the the little game I've been, one of the few games I've been running with Lego, and um, the 
the game basically you give some people some Lego and you give them uh, an overriding instruction as a group uh, to be able to deliver on volume rather than quality and to deliver as many ideas as they possibly can. And the idea is something like what will transport look like in the year 2040. Then you split them into smaller teams and you give each team uh, often conflicting objectives. One team will be told to copy what other teams are doing. Another team will be told your success will be judged on how you uh, have unique ideas in the room. Um, some people will be told something a bit abstract and, you know, the way these things sit together. One of the observations of running that game a few times now is at no point does anybody say, let's find out what each other's objectives are. And it's telling because actually if they did that up front, they as a group and the game that, you know, I set the scene quite clearly that the game is volume for everybody in the room. We are a team. I'm now going to put you into sub teams. The minute you put people into sub teams, the minute you define people individually with objectives, there is something deep in the culture of certainly business in the UK that goes, right, that's secret. It's really deep-rooted. And it's really problematic, because if you don't know... And it's also this bullshit we've got at the moment about um, negotiation is a poker-like activity. It isn't. Negotiation should be something you do as much in the open as possible, because by being in the open, if both sides need to come out of it trying to be able to get to some sort of um, positive outcome for both, you've got the best chance of that happening if everybody's open about what it is they're doing. Um, and that misunderstanding of how, of how good negotiation works irks me beyond belief as well. But anyway, that's a, that's another subject for another time. Yeah, so I think uh, it was a thumbs up for that book uh, between the two of us. And, okay, um, yes. It was, no, it was good. It was good. It's worth a right. You could probably get as much information about OKRs from the internet, though, without having to buy the book. Oh, I think that's fairly, a, fair, a fair observation, yeah. So um, it's time then for us to find the next book for the next two weeks and for the um, uh, next book in the in the book club. So um, I think, Chris, I'm going to hand over the pressing of the button to to you. Right. Okay. In that case, I shall I shall press the randomizer button. There we um, go. It's... With all ceremony. Oh, that was beautifully done. Okay. So the next book is uh, one called The Obstacle is the Way by a chap called Ryan Holiday. It's a shame that one isn't our last book before we go off for summer breaks, isn't it? Because then the WB40 Holiday Book Club would be by holiday. But, you know, you can't have everything. Uh, That's a, you know, that, I can see where you're going with that, Matt, but I, but I think it's a small price to pay. Well, obviously, yeah. So that's one of the books that was being um, suggested by uh, Andrew Doran and... Uh, we give up too easily, is apparently the uh, starting of that. What seems like a mountable problems become once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. Um, so there we go. We'll put a link on the website, and if you want to join the book club reading, then you can. I've just bought it now. Look at that. Okay, so it's interview time. Uh, and uh, this week, um, somebody that you work with, um, a chap called Mark Hankin, who works for a company called Jumar, Um Tell us a little bit about who Jumar are and, and what, what they do. Well, I've been working with Jumar um, uh, to one extent or another for, well, for years, actually, as a, as a, um, as a customer. Um, and more recently, in the last few years, I've been helping them out with various projects. Um, they're a, they, they do a number of um, things in the solutions and recruitment space, so essentially finding people for projects and, and doing bits of development and uh, solving solving problems that, um, that, that, that that people need to solve technologically. And um, they recently have um, spent quite a lot of time and effort and investment in their permanent team. So they, they if you they if you can imagine if you if you're if you're the kind of um, uh, person you need a you need a, a certain set of skills you can go out to the contract market and and these these guys will do that for you but they also have, have permanent people so um it, it's good for them if they are permanent people because they 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 get more repeat business and these guys learn learn about the customers and all that good value and all that stuff but um it it sort of um it doubles down on their on their knowledge and experience in particular areas so They've been doing that, and and so what I thought it was interesting because 
because of the reasons that, that that's happening. So we've got uh, things like our IR35 happening in, in certainly in, in public sector at the moment, uh, and um, they are you know that's something that's definitely affected the business because it does a lot of work with public sector customers. And all, but and also that's likely to to come into the private sector in uh, sometime soon. There's consultation uh, happening or just closed, which is pretty uh, pretty sure to uh, <laughs> end up with HMRC bringing it into the, the private sector, and um, that will have an impact. And and the fact that it, this is this is a kind of a view of mine really that, that I see that it's just too complex now for people to have all the people on in, in their team that that they need. Life's too complicated. IT is too complicated. Technology is is spread out over a whole de- series of disciplines, and teams have changing uh, requirements all the time. If you win a customer, or you acquire a new business, or you get a new big sort of um, uh, strategic supplier that needs to do some integration, you suddenly need to do things that which you can do because you've got cloud platforms and infrastructure as a service and all of these sort of things. You can spin all sorts of things up, but you can't necessarily do them because you don't have the skills. So do you want to go out to a, to a vendor who's going to sell you a product? or Do you want to bring your skills in-house? Or do you want to work with a value-added partner? Those are the kind of those are the choices that you've got. So so I'm interested in in what's brought um, the business to, to this stage, really, and that's what we, uh, Mark and I talked about. And you started off by asking him uh, what sorts of things his clients were currently asking from him. I suppose the first question is, what is driving the different requests that we see? Um, some of it is edicts and the like of government for um, a variety of technologies, but actually a huge variety of technologies and actually an ever-changing stack of technologies. Um, that's one thing. Uh, now that is where we have well-planned, normal, business-as-usual projects. Um, Those might be transformational change projects um, or just large uh, deliverables that a client has to to have to maintain their business differentiator, say. Um, But also we're engaged where uh, we have a number of large clients that quite openly say to us, we're coming to you now because our planning has failed. Um, so therefore there's more of kind of a reactive rather than proactive demand and we support clients with that. Um, so what we've done is we've uh, we've taken that, we've had experience in the, on the recruitment division for years now of um, this kind of varying demand. And uh, we have figured out using some very senior guys that we've brought in, invested in, in our solutions division. Um, in some people who can support uh, act as the kind of the underpinning for those projects. So typically, um, it would be um, different types of architects. So we have enterprise architects, solution architects, technical architects, infrastructure architects, data architects. Um, all of these people are the kind of people who would have uh, would act in a point capacity on a project. Um, who, who we can then uh, wrap around other types of resources. Um, so, for example, um, we had a requirement for a client. They're going through a transformation. So their their transformational need was uh, it was really to, to harden the architecture of a platform they constructed. Um, we engaged. We um, deployed uh, one of our most senior architects, a chief architect, um, who is one of those hyper-technical, visionary, thousand-yard stare when he, kind of, when he gets in the groove kind of architects. And what we wrapped around him was the he had the vision. We, we, we then sent in a solution architect to look at more of the detail, that he, and he was directing that solution architect. Um, and during that engagement, we realized there was a particular need around Docker. Um, so, you know, it's the whole thing about microservices, containerization, that kind of thing. And there was, a, there was some security issues. Um, and we needed a Docker specialist. Uh, but if you imagine you're a large organization, um, you're looking at your uh, your resource base, and you're thinking, we need a, we need a Docker specialist. Ah, we haven't got one. We need to go to the contractor market. So if you imagine as a normal large organization, you'd be thinking, well, we've looked at this. We actually only need them for two weeks. Um, 
how are we going to get a docker specialist in for two weeks well probably the first thing is going to cost you a fortune um, and the other thing is you're going to have to try and manage that docker specialist so what you're going to do well you have to try and find your own archi senior architect enterprise architect to direct them so the, the, the problem immediately begins to grow uh, for our clients well what we did um, we uh, you know directing that project we uh, we left the meetings where we identified the problem we rang back to base mm -hmm. and we were able to locate a docker specialist from our network somebody who we've used before within 45 minutes by the time we got back um, but it's you know that variability and unpredictability of the, of the technology requirement is uh, a problem that we've had to invest in heavily to, to solve it for our clients. It's, it's a problem that's definitely there, um, I think is uh, bigger for our clients because you know, they haven't necessarily got the, the network and the, uh, the mechanisms to make that kind of, um, to be able to lo locate those kind of resources. Um, back to the the variability uh, of the technology stack. Um, you know, if I look back, probably what three years ago, um, everything was doing a lot around Java. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking kind of a bit more kind of large private sector. Also, you know, a lot of the big projects in the in the public sector. Um, we were doing a lot around Java. Uh, the mean stack was getting prominence, um, and I will always remember when Scala uh, started to to get a bit more traction. Um, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure. Well, I'm not sure allowed to actually talk about this. If it's, I don't think it's confidential, but <laughs> but basically, <laughs> well say it anyway. I, I heard. I don't know if you heard this. I heard that uh, the whole switch to Scala, particularly in public sector, came from a very very chief architect who. Um, read about it in a dentist waiting room <laughs> read a technology magazine in, in well, a dentist waiting that room. wouldn't surprise me that's uh, that's not a story that uh, that would uh, shock a lot of people in the in the government put it that way yeah, yeah. so uh, i love that uh <laughs> but yeah so um really what we're talking about is uh where we've invested where we've had to invest is in the architecture space is in the business analysis and PM space. So really what we're looking at is um, these are the resources that will uh, are often customer engagement resources, client engagement resources, um, and they're the guys who will uh, kickstart, drive and direct projects. Um, so often I think clients will have, when they're looking at where they're actually investing, um, you know, you talk about kickstarting projects. Well, that's often will be on the back of what will precipitate that. It's a transformational need. You probably don't want to invest in four enterprise architects, twenty project managers, sixty BAs for a transformational project because you're probably going to have a bit of a headache um, at the end of the uh, of that project. Where you know, it's simple stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so. Uh, those are the, are the kind of resources that uh, that we've invested in. Um, we also have to think about more of the how would you put it the the, the shoveling kind of end of the project. So you've scoped the requirements, um, and really it's more about kind of how do you manage capacity. Obviously, uh, capacity. Obviously, a lot of these um, there's still a lot. Of, uh, it's not just about capacity, it's capability. Uh, and particularly where you get um, very high capability teams where you have, um, I, I listened to your podcast on DevOps the other week, you know, very good by the way. Uh, of course it was. The, well, well it, it was the, the, it was the, um, the interviewee, I must yeah, it was particularly yeah. good. Yeah, so good. well done Tom, save uh, us again. <laughs> So you're know, listening to that, but these are incredibly capable people who are uh, very, typically very highly performed. Um, so you need a number of those individuals, but also you know you, you do need to still consider uh, the the kind of the effectively the capacity that you need, the kind of that higher volume of resources, you know, the developers, the testers, um, and that's where we've for that 
side of development. You know, we we've been working um, a long time now with kind of offshore and nearshore uh, resources to give us that capacity, and that you know, there's been a lot of lessons learned. Mm. Um, there are challenges with it, particularly when you do uh, if you have if you're actually using multiple centres as we do. Um, there are challenges of coordination and yeah, certainly, right, especially, especially with DevOps as well, because with DevOps it, it, tend, it tends to be more you know everybody's in the room, everybody's got to be have relationships and all of that sort of thing. So so trying to do DevOps and distribute it around various um, places, I, I, I think, is a challenge. Mm. Um, but I, I think also when you, when you, I mean, I've I've seen this in big organisations uh, where you've got. Well, you've got a blocker around one certain one piece of work or one type of work, for example, where maybe you've got a whole bunch of things that need doing. You've got you've got the business complaining about, well, I, you know, I have to wait loads of time, lots and lots of time for IT to pick my projects up because there's no capacity. What what a department will sometimes do is it will say, oh, well, in that case, what we need is we need more BAs to to go out and get gather these requirements so we can do some t-shirt sizing and mm. some some sort of simple business cases. So you, so people, they invest in those people, which which sort of widens the funnel at, at that part. But then you have a, a blocker a, a bit further down because yeah. there aren't the, the there aren't the people to manage the projects, or you end up with a bit further down because there's nobody to manage the environments. Or but there so is, but so it's about finding out where the pain is, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, interesting. There is. Um there is uh, kind of like an how would you put it an inverse effect where if you remove a, blo- a blocker further downstream the business get wind that there's actually now capacity and then all of a sudden you get there's a portfolio management problem we, we've seen that a number of times um, and there we would deploy we've got like a head of project services or program managers um, and they'll pop in and help organizations with their portfolio prioritization uh, that's right isn't it because it's like, like build, building another lane on the motorway you know you think it's yeah. going to give you capacity but then you know look about three weeks later and the motorway's just got <laughs> yeah. more cars yeah. on it Yeah, and and I think I've, I've seen this quite a lot recently is prioritisation is really important because if it just looks like there's there's capacity especially if you don't have things like cross charging and charging and things like that where mm. where people feel some sort of pain when they try when they try and utilise a resource yeah yeah um, it just it just fills up, so prioritisation is really important. And, and mm. is it is it about is it about teaching the customer about that, is it, or is it about helping IT directors, CIO type people? It can, that? It can be teach. Yeah, we, we've had experience of where it can be about about teaching the customer prioritisation. It's I don't think it's as simple um, as just looking at the business case for individual projects. Often it's the impact of um, you have to focus more about the opportunity cost of uh, of one over the other. It's not just about looking at something and saying, you know, if you look at an insurance client, it's going to um, increase uh, the reach to clients. It's going to inc- increase to um, potential um, customers. It's going to reduce cost. Um, if you're doing that. Very often, some of these some of these programs are so big. Um, although the prize is actually seem to be big, or the risk you're mitigating is so big, you kind of lose sight of what um, what else you're not doing. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. kind of subtly different. I had um, a conversation with somebody, somebody recently about, um, and I think it was Google, one of these organisations anyway, who decided that they weren't going to bother with expense policies anymore, procedures, because. It took so long for people to fill in their expense forms and things like that. They just gave them a credit card, and they, they just figured out that if there was malpractice, it, it 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 could be dealt with through management, and it was just so less costly than the whole process of managing expenses. And that's kind of a no-brainer in many ways. It's 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 a way of saying, look, we're going to trust you if you if you if you if you take that if you if you take the mic, we'll we'll take you through the disciplinary process, of course. Yeah. But you know that that that's just trust people with with, with expenses, um, and that's a bit of a no-brainer. But then somebody's piping up and saying yes, but there are some really good systems. You know, we don't. It doesn't have to be uh, onerous anymore. There are ways to do it, and these there absolutely are. But the question is, is 
should you prioritise that activity in your IT team, for example, to put that system in over something else? Is there, that's an opportunity cost, isn't there, to doing those things compared to something else? Or you could say, well, we'll do them both, but still, the the, the cost, as you say, as you say, once that once that team starts to get big, once that portfolio gets bigger and bigger, mm. then you've got to put some some mighty management layer across it. So yeah. sometimes it's about focusing on what on what's what's really important, isn't it? Yeah, and for me, it's the this is where I've seen um, you know the power of the of the of the architecture teams helping. Not just with the prioritize, you know, they, they can help with prioritization, um, but also, you know, when they're when you're looking at the the risk of introducing more and more complexity of more and more systems, you know, we we we've been dealing with some clients recently whose portfolios that you know and you must you you would have seen it all the time. They're, they've got no idea what they've got. It always blows me away. You know, we were we were talking the other day about an organization. It was it was a particular kind of asset. That they had and had no idea it always blows blows me away, you know. But it's kind of, I'm pretty sure I can remember how many Xboxes and mobile phones my kids have got, you know, because they're 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 valuable things. Um, there's a potential cost, big cost if you if you don't um, monitor and manage those assets, like the seven hundred pounds Xbox <laughs> <laughs> live bill I had once when. Uh, my kids didn't realise that these things actually were, they did actually cost real money. Um, but that's, you know, you lose that visibility as an organisation and, uh, you know, the, the the risk is, is huge. So when it comes to the, it's just all these different elements, isn't it, when, you, when you're looking at the uh, uh, prioritisation. So, so I was working with, um, uh, he's classed as the... Uh, Head of business enterprise architecture and an insurance client we work with, great guy. Um, and he's been doing a lot of work on organisational strategy, and uh, you know he's he's really pared it down to uh, what's going to protect revenues, what's the existing revenues, what's going to increase uh, uh, revenues in the longer term, reduce costs, um, what's going to drive. The net promoter score and uh, protect customer retention rates. Real core, uh, core business. You know the core business drivers. Um, so if you kind of, it's all about simplifying it. I think you know, and that's what our guys when they when they engage, we're always trying to look what is the the kind of just abstract and abstract and just get to the what's the real core of the business problem. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting when we think of where you know. We, for, when you look at the um, our traditional models, you know, we grew up from a res- an IT resourcing um, organisation. We extended just after two thousand, start to do IT projects. Um, we have uh, learned a lot over the years. Um, we've invested heavily around project governance. Um, you know, I've learned a lot over the past five years around governance. I just used to think it was, uh, you put a project manager on and your governance is sorted, you know? And, uh, but that's not the case at all. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's something that has to be ingrained um, and accepted uh, within an organization, uh, within our, us as a services organization, but also in the, in the client organization, it can actually be distrusted. So if you're kind of sat down talking to a client about, uh, why a project is costing a particular amount, and then you talk about well, and that's a project manager, that's a PMO analyst, that's a program manager, that's a program director. And uh, at first, I always, I always felt I had to defend it. You know, when I was in the old days, when I was more like an account manager, um, you feel like you have to defend it. But no, it's actually um, what you're defending against is the overrun. If you've got a team of a hundred, and you overrun. By two weeks, my God! I mean, it's you know, people miss that. That's the the power of um, of governance. I bet I've been spending too much time with our chief services. Yeah, officer. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. I yeah, I can I can think of a song with the power of governance. It's not, it's not something I think number one. But no, I, I, you're right though. Of course, you know, you, it's a, but it's a, it's a it's a cultural thing as much as anything, isn't it? It's like security. You can't make security happen with, with with posters and 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 firewall rules and 
and, and things like that. It has to be. It has to be something that, that's culturally important, and people understand why it's important. And the same goes with governance. I've kicked back against governance for loads of times because it's it, 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 it's it's done as a tick box exercise to say, well, we've got to do this because we've got to do governance. But it's but it's just it's just cumbersome. It's just a it's just a process that's been put on for the sake of it. So no, I know, but I know what you mean. It's um, it, it, it it is important. One of the things that I, so I went to a conference the other day where they were talking. It was a lot talking about IR thirty five a lot in the public sector and the fact that there's a there's a, a consult uh, the, the government uh, consultation that yeah. I think just finished on on private sector IR thirty five. And everybody seems to think it's going to ha- it's going to hit um, private sector as well. Do you? You might I mean I don't know. This might be an unfair question, but do you think that the the, the way IR thirty five has in, impacted public sector has caused them to think differently about how they go out for contract resource, or is it too is is, is public sector too already mired in all of their kind of DOS and and frameworks and things like that for them to be able to? To make that change, do you think it's something that if if the private sector in the same way, and private sector companies suddenly if they go out to the market and just hire a contractor, they've got to think about, mm-hmm. you know, how, how do I how do I figure out whether this this job is in or out? Do yeah. you think that, or do you think that'll change the way you you provide people? Do you think it'll increase increase demand for a kind of skills as service type yeah I mean it's it's an opportunity and a risk for us to be honest Um, I suppose a couple of points really the 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 way that the 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 public sector have been procuring has evolved Um, I was speaking to a really senior guy at the Crown Commercial Service and he was kind of explaining the uh, the kind of evolutionary path and you know where they're looking to get to um, the, I think the reality is you know we've, we've seen you know the Aspire contract with HMRC um, and there's a lot of stuff like, yeah, there seems to be a lot of stuff in, when you read um, you know, the register there's often things in there about you know the breakup of the Aspire contract and um, the impact of uh, on the likes of say Capgemini Accenture, Fujitsu and the like um, so I think the there are now a lot of moving parts and a, the, there is an evolution kind of happening so that the place of the SIs is changing we've been working with the SIs for years you know quite happily um, Capgemini in particular we've got a great relationship with um, but we've been working with the, the other SIs the, the the way that their service has been consumed has evolved um, and you know, there's been a, a slight switch towards maybe moving away from that massive outsourced project more towards smaller outsourcing projects actually just some something more akin to resource augmentation uh, with the fact being that the um, the likes of HMRC have been investing heavily as you would have seen uh, with increasing their own permanent headcount they're looking to govern and control their own projects um, and then consume delivery resources from the SIs actually, actually from SMEs as well um, the the whole IR thirty five consultation piece has impacted them. So, um, in certain uh, delivery centres in the public centre, public sector, sorry, they've been classed as being inside of IR thirty five. So contractors simply don't want to work there. So, the uh, you know if if that gets or when that gets rolled out to the pub- private sector, um, there'll be a similar reduction in the level of capacity in the marketplace to support them. So, well, they really because where are they going to go? I mean, if there's a, if there is a capacity right now in terms of contract labour, and now and and some of the people at this conference of the day were, were they were saying yeah that a lot of the guys now won't work yeah for, for public sector they'll just say is this public sector in that case I'm not interested yeah which but not all public sector projects are no they're not yeah. no you're right they're not but but that's what that's that's what some of the people were saying is and, and the people were just saying I just don't want the hassle of it I'm not I'm not going anywhere near public sector which economics says that reduces the level of supply in public sector so so rates will go up but given that you've got a a, a, a base of, of supply then that more should go into the private sector and yeah maybe it maybe it depresses rates a little bit 
probably probably insignificant in terms of numbers. But at the time where then IR thirty five goes into private sector, it that's it, isn't it? There's no, where else do you work? You work in public or you work in private sector, or you go back into permanent employment yeah. as a contractor. So do you think that do you think that that will push permanent headcount up? I think that's I think that's that's a part of the government's hope, isn't it? Because they want those. Yeah. They want the permanent. Personally, I would I, I would I would see that it would push um, the permanent headcount up. I mean, realistically, the uh, organisations cannot carry. Um, the, the, the maximum level of, uh, if you look at kind of like peaks and troughs of demand, they can't carry a permanent headcount which is matched to the peaks, obviously. So they're going to have to get resources from somewhere. So for me, um, I would see that there would be uh, a transformation in the supply chain where the SIs continue to um, invest in their permanent headcount, and we are seeing that. Um, but then in all SMEs like ourselves, we continue to um, increase our permanent headcount uh, to match. Now the um, the trick and the risk is then to have a sufficient pipeline of demand as an SME to be able to coordinate um, s sufficient numbers of projects which are um, interesting to our, I know it sounds, it sounds uh, a bit fluffy, but you've got to keep your staff interested. You've got to, these got to be interesting projects um, for the, for our resources to work on. Um, but what it means is we need to to engage with um, a fairly hefty number of clients who could have that could give us that potential level of demand. That takes, um, or what that actually results in, is pressure on the. S end of the SMEs on the smaller organisations. So if you imagine, if you're kind of if you're geogra geographically restricted, and you focus on a particular niche, there's a bit of a risk there that your resources will not always be gainfully employed. Um, and for us, as we grow, uh, you know we've been pretty successful, which is good. Uh, it's, you know, it's good to be part of that success, but um, what it means is we're constantly horizon scanning and looking at. Um, you know where we can most meaningfully deploy our resources. So, for me, I think, irrespective of what's going to happen with Brexit, the financial services organisations are a, a real focus for us. Um, there's a natural level of uh, both transformational activity and just uh, just the imperative because of changes in legislation. That um, there will be projects there, so you know we've got a lot of experience around financial services, so that's good. So we'll continue to deploy, deploy our resources there. <coughs> but also, um, when we look at the, the government departments, you know there's a there's some pretty scary hard stops, you know, around Brexit. Those projects have to be delivered, irrespective of what happens with IR35, irrespective of what happens with the supply chain and cost, they've got to be delivered. You know, so. Um, so, I thirty five is. Um, I think it'll cause a, a, a transformation in the uh, in the supply chain, moving towards permanent. You're right. I think. I think it'll push contractor rates up. Um, do you think it'll? Do you think it will make a reduction in in the number of kind of single sort of individual contractors? Will more contractors be working through kind of a Jumar or a Capgemini or? You know, is that what's the? I I wonder. Uh, and this is where I need to talk to our, I need to talk to our architects. It's a question for you, Chris. <laughs> uh, is it that um, the level of automation that will uh, continue to be innovated in and deployed across you know the large clients? Will the level of automation and Will the you know, more and more? This is about orchestrating smaller components, not necessarily code yourself out of everything. I do wonder whether the actual number of resources to support any large program of work will actually reduce. So, a diminished uh, number of contractors in the supply chain, albeit they'll be charging more because of the supply and demand. Yeah, they'll be deployed on. It'll take less of them to to actually accomplish. A similar objective for clients. Will, will technology uh, allow that to happen?
Fascinating stuff. Um, do you know what? What this gets me thinking is why are technology organisations just so unequipped, ill-equipped to be able to think about design of organisation, skills, capabilities. You either have structure based around a technology or you have structure based around a methodology, you know, projects or service delivery or DevOps or whatever else. But nowhere in most IT organisations, most technology organisations that I know of, is there an organisational design, skills, capabilities. It's something that, oh, we occasionally talk to HR about. And yet, actually, with such a fast-moving set of needs and such a dynamic, certainly certain elements of it, such a dynamic marketplace for skills, I'd have thought this should be something that was going way up the list of CIOs and CTOs agenda in terms of the capability, you know, the core capability is how do we manage the resources and the people that we need to be able to continually adapt to what we need to do? Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, that goes back to the, the, what I, you know, what I said before, before the interview, really, we, we have in IT teams, such a, an array now of things that we are asked to do and projects that we get involved in that we really need the ability to go out and and find people, but also work to a structure, work to a plan. You know, I've I've had a a bit of a guideline, not 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 as anything as hard as a rule, but I've worked to a guideline, and for for financial reasons as much as anything. But but it's a but it's also about team dynamic and about keeping um, things fresh in your team that you should have a, a number, and it depends on the size of the team and the type of the business you're in, but. A certain uh, so a certain number of people in your team who are not permanent, in the same way as you should not have you should not own all of your assets as a business because you'd need to be able to flex. You 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 just need to be able to um, breathe in and out as as a team. You need to have a certain number of people who are learning. You know whether they're apprentices or whether they're uh, graduates or whatever they're in your team. You need a certain number of people who are really you know time served and. And and know their know their business inside out. You need to have a a healthy mix, and it's not you know it's easy for me to say that, isn't it? It's not something you can just wave your magic wand to make happen. But it, but if you work to that objective, then you have a healthier team. Um, but then how do you then go out and 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 have that ability to do that flex? How what sort of what sort of method do you use? Do you just you know, go out into the into the horrible world every now and again and? Go fishing in the in the pond of um, of contract labour because that's not necessarily the way it works. I know you can you you'd, you'd uh, cringe at the term contract labour. No, I, <laughs> I understand what it means. It's horrible, but you know, Bethan's calling it talent. Um, I think it's interesting actually when you were talking then. I thought actually, why doesn't Wardley Mapping deal with this? And of course, Wardley Mapping doesn't deal with this because Wardley Mapping doesn't deal with anything to do with people. But actually, if you think about it in that kind of value chain mapping thing. The rare skills, which are the ones that are most sought after, are the most difficult to hold in-house, but are the ones that probably organisations... I don't know, you've got skills that you need once in a blue moon because you do something once, and then you've got things like development skills that you maybe need all the time. But depending on what it is you're developing on, whether those are you know skills that are easy to obtain in the market or not, and that kind of mapping exercise, people don't do. But making decisions about technology purely on business need and technology fit without taking account of can we actually get people to be able to continue to deliver this technology and where will we get them and what's that market going to look like over the next couple of years and will that cost us the earth and, 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 and. That seems to me to be crucial in all of this. And it, I don't. I have met very, very, very few technology leaders who even even crosses their mind. Well, that's that's absolutely right. And we've seen the 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 anecdotal conversations that I have now about about people, especially in London, trying to retain, uh, recruit, and retain developers. But actually, it's not just in London; it's everywhere. And bemoaning the fact they can't get quality people. Well, that's that's because they're rare. That's the point that we have. We do. We definitely do have a skills gap. I know some people will say we don't have a skills gap. We really do. Um, in terms of the people who are available to come and work for you in your business full time, it's 
why would somebody do that? Why would a developer come and work for your waste management business um, full time when, when actually they've got any number of things they can go and do? They can come and do an interesting piece of work for you and they want to go and work, do something interesting elsewhere. They don't want to spend their time um, sitting, sifting through support desk calls necessarily. Now, that's, that's not necessarily helpful, but you do need to figure out how you deal with it. And that means taking on a mixture of people and not, not just going on to a, you know, going off on a, a rant about rates or whatever. And I mean, I've worked, I, I work with people on um, uh, offshore engagement or nearshore engagement. And sometimes when you talk to people about that, they say, oh, well, that's too expensive. I can get people in India for $100 a day or whatever. It's, it's irrelevant. The price is irrelevant. What is, what's relevant is what are you trying to achieve? Let's get the quality not 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 the price and and that's the you know there's just so many confusing uh pressures on people they they tend to they tend to make poor decisions in my in my experience um and that's not a criticism it, it's just a, it's a cultural and organizational thing isn't it well so thanks to uh to mark hankin for that um interesting interview and we now put our efforts into the next week or so matt and we've got uh, various things to do and also we're, we're still uh, looking at the um uh, wb40 live of course which is turning into a bit of a day out i think isn't it yeah we're trying to work out how we make it not an event because we don't want we don't like events events are rubbish they've become hackneyed and cliched and just dreadful um so the the idea we're playing with and whether this will work or not who knows but you know experiments uh, is it's going to be the WD, WB, WB40. Oh, get the branding uh, I right. know, I know. Oh, it's, 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 it's the WB40 day out. Uh, we, will, we will invite a group of people to go somewhere for a day. We will go and see things. Some of those things might be ideas. Some of those things might be physical things. Uh, we're not quite sure what. Um, we've got an idea about who we might invite. Uh, we've got an idea about where we might go and uh, we continue to um, formulate. So uh, that's that's the update on that. Um, and then coming up in the next uh, week, uh, I think um, I've got an interview hopefully coming up uh, with Rachel Murphy, who um, is the most action-orientated person to ever write action-oriented on her CV ever. So that should be entertaining. Uh, and uh, if, yes. she does, if she does write action oriented on her CV, it's, it's one of those things that wouldn't be a, uh, a an exaggeration, is it? No, it'd be in capitals, triple underlined, and with exclamation marks <laughs> at the end of it. Um, so, you know, that'll be good. I haven't seen her for a while. So, um, and find out what she's doing with her new company. I think it's called Different, isn't it? Um, different. Different. It it, but it's called Different. Oh, no, it's it's got to be dot com, isn't it? Um, and so, yeah, that's going to be a week ahead, uh, a couple of days in Cambridge, and uh, probably the continuing heat wave where everything melts. Yeah, I wonder whether the um, podcasting infrastructure of the uh, of the UK will um, will be affected by by the heat. Uh, the roads are melting where I was today. The, the old uh, tarmac starting to, to come apart. So, uh, yes, we've returned to 1976 and all, and all that. Excellent. And we get Brexit more stuff this week as well, and they publish something that will instantly get rejected. There is a there is a great deal of Brexit things Brexit things happening, um, and uh, quite important, really. And and I would say this, wouldn't I? Having spent all that time uh, a year or so ago uh, travelling around, waffling on about re- Brexit uh, risks to IT people. Um, a lot of them are starting to come true, or at least the risk of them uh, being seriously um, seriously crystallising is increasing. Oh, I've got my own views on whether that will uh, happen or not, um, and maybe we can jabber on about it in a in a in a future podcast. But certainly, a lot of that stuff will become a lot more clear in the next couple of weeks because there's. Uh, one of those um, one of those splendid um, government meetings at Chequers in which uh, it is promised that the view will become very clear, uh, which is something I've heard before, so I'm not going to hold my breath. Uh, I think I might turn purple and expire. Uh, but um, there's also a, a speech by Michel Barnier. He's going to say some stuff. Um, and, um, and then we've got Donald Trump coming to the country, of course, uh, and it's not 
add, add to the question, although and, and I'm going to say this because I'm, I, you know, as much as I, I've enjoyed the World Cup, I don't believe in superstition or, or, or jinxing uh, the England team with, with my own words. But uh, it could be that um, on the day that Donald Trump comes here, that we're playing Russia in Moscow uh, in the semi-finals of the World Cup. So it could all happen at once. Well, there you go. Well done. You've jinxed it. Um, super. Well, have a good week and um, we'll see you next week. That's the end of episode 71. Uh, leave us a review if you feel so good-hearted. You can find us on Stitcher, on iTunes and all other good podcasting platforms. Until next week, see you then. <laughs>